Good morning, everybody, and welcome once again to Pain Week 2017. I guess this is our 11th year now, seventh year here at Cosmopolitan. For those of you who do not know me, uh, my name is Dr. David Glick. Um, I have been one of the speakers at Pain Week for some time now, I guess. So this is, I guess, old hat. Um, but I want to give you an apology from the very beginning since I am one of those lousy people who can't tell time and tend to push the session to the very bitter end. So I think the compensation for that is they schedule me before a break. So if I go over, I don't upset anybody. So I apologize if I push the time limit to the end. Um, what we have for you today is a session called Pain Pathophysiology. But uh, Dr. Schottmeyer, who's sitting in the back, painfully reminded us that we're really not talking about the idea of pathophysiology, but it's the idea of neurophysiology in general. So I guess that means next year we have to rename these sessions. So I'll have to come up with a new catchy title, which will be more consistent with the other cool catchy titles we have here at Pain Week. So this session has a couple of different reasons for being here. One is pain pathophysiology, or the neurophysiology of pain, is basically the fundamental building block for a lot of what we do here at Pain Week, if you think about it, because this is really the why, how things occur that really that warrants everything else that we do. So it's one of those good background sessions. But one of the things that is extremely important to Pain Week that goes back to our beginnings is it's not just the, the ability of providing didactic knowledge, but how we teach this knowledge, which is extremely important. So what I crafted for this session was something that talks about this complex mechanism of pain in as much as you can do in an hour, but to do it in a very simplistic way for the purposes of being able to explain this, this concept to people such as our patients who may not be medically knowledgeable, or to an insurance adjuster or somebody else, or even someone who is a physician or clinician, but doesn't necessarily practice in the realm of pain. So we wanted to make some of the concepts easy to understand and easy to explain, because that goes a long way, because I would be lying if I stood up here and didn't tell you that sometimes all I've done to treat a complicated pain patient is to educate them about their condition and alter their expectations, and all of a sudden they're reporting that they're a lot better. As a matter of fact, that happened um, a couple weeks ago. I just started em embarking on doing telemedicine formally. So one of the first patients I had seen was a two-hour face-to-face telemedicine consult. He shows up back at his physician the week later and tells this physician how much better he's doing since the consult with Dr. Glick. So the guy calls me up and said, what did you do? I thought you weren't going to be seeing patients anymore. It's like, well, I'm not. I saw him online. But just being informed about why he was having his pain and then understanding what his expectations should be based on the treatment he was already getting, which was actually giving him notable relief, made all the difference in the world. So patient expectations are key, especially when you think about the fact that how many patients look at television? So they see, let's say, a television commercial showing a painful pathology. I already usurped it and introduced myself. I've already started. Isn't it 9 o'clock? Oh, well, so I started early. But I'm going to make use of that time because we're going to push it to the very end. And it's been a long, robust introduction anyway, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> Please do. Well, if you want, I can make the housekeeping note about the app. That would be great. Thank you. See that? We're done. So before I forget, housekeeping note about the app. When you pull up the set, any session that you sit through on the app, 
you know that you can pull up the slide deck. And I noticed some of you have the slide decks pulled up. But if you, if you um, scroll down a little bit, you also have the ability of rating each speaker. So there are several categories that you can rate the speaker at. And you have to choose the number of stars, but you also have to click the submit button right below that to make sure that that rating gets, gets uploaded. If you don't click submit, it won't go up. And then there's a comment box down there, too, where you can write specific comments about the speaker. And trust me, all of us as speakers really value the feedback, good or bad, because it really helps us improve upon our sessions going forward so that we learn as well. So you know, please be nice and give feedback to your speakers, favorable or not. It, it really, really will be appreciated. So back to our side note about the, the, um, the patient idea of the equation. So a patient sees a television commercial, let's say, for widespread pain. We all know what that one's for, right? Diffuse widespread pain. So the patient sees this television commercial and then sees this person receiving this medication for that. So what are their expectations if they take that med? Interactive audience, you're supposed to answer. 100% relief, right? That if they take this pill, they're going to have a nice, happy life, carefree, just like the person in the television commercial. But we all know, because we've seen the clinical trial for that particular medication, so that we know that one-third of the patients had to drop out because they couldn't tolerate the side effects. And another 30% of the patients got a 30% improvement in their pain scales, which went from a 6 to 4 after 6 months. And they didn't like their side effects, but they stuck it out because they were told they had to. And 23% of the patients got the same 30% improvement in their pain scales without the side effects. So to get 10% better than placebo, you had a 30% chance you couldn't tolerate the medication at all, and a 30% chance you would tolerate it, but not accept the, not like the symptoms or the side effects. Do we get that impression just by looking at the television commercial? So our patients really have a false expectation. So being able to communicate with, with your patients is extremely important. And that's one of the reasons why I keep on promoting Dr. Schopmeyer's session for Saturday that you have to go to. So I have nothing formally to disclose. With that, we have to review our learning objectives for the morning. It's nice to see people piling in. And I apologize to those who are arriving for starting early. But I always finish late. So our learning objectives for the morning are pretty simple. We want to be able to differentiate between the concept of nociceptive and neuropathic pain, because we often see that confused in medical records. Um, it is important, if we're going to treat patients in pain, that we understand the process of pain. So I like to make sure that we all can describe the process of pain transmission in, let's say, five words or less. We'll give a nod to Dr. McPherson. And then, if, depending on how much time we have at the end, I want to look at the idea that since we use pharmacologic interventions to treat some of our pain patients, or many of our pain patients, it's nice to know where in this process of pain that that particular pharmaceutical or, or, or medication might have an action. So we'll, we'll talk about some of the different things that I remember that I think are important to remember about those different medications. So we started our voyage this morning talking about the concept of good pain versus bad pain. Who thinks pain is good? Come on, raise your hands, because it is, right? If I touch something that's hot, don't I want to know that surface is hot so that I pull my finger away fast enough to prevent that potential first-degree burn from becoming a third-degree burn? Yes. If I'm about to have a potential fatal cardiac event, don't I want to have chest pain to forewarn me, to give me time to intervene and preserve mortality or save me from mortality? Yes. So pain can be a good thing. But what happens if I touch my finger to that surface and I pulled it away, but six months later it's still burning? Well, pain might have started out with all of the best intentions, 
but all of a sudden, now we just assume that it not be there. So pain can be good. Sustained pain, maybe not so great. Now, I put a clinical pearl here because I always like to start off with a soapbox statement. And my soapbox statement here is, if I take a spear and stick it in your foot, what's your presenting diagnosis? Spear and foot. And foot pain, correct? Well, the problem that we have is all too often, people will have foot pain from a spear in the foot, let's say, because the spear is still there. Someone will come to you with chronic pain six months later because no one ever bothered to look for the spear. Well, would we all agree that it would be a lot easier to treat the pain if you looked for the spear first and removed it? How much harder is it to treat the pain while the spear is still present? You know, so I come from a practice where we basically specialized in seeing difficult, chronic, or complex cases. So we were seeing the post-op low back pain, maybe sometimes post-op times five. And the patient has already gone through every single intervention under the sun and saying, okay, now what? But then sometimes all you do is take a step backwards, look for the spear, pull it out, and your outcome becomes totally different. So please look for the spear. Good pain in general is basically, or an example of good pain in general, is this concept of nociceptive pain. For nociceptive pain, what we're doing is we're taking information from our outside environment, something that's hot, cold, sharp, dull, and interpreting that into something that we can use to adapt our behavior. And that's the key concept here. It's something that's adaptive, right? You know, you touch that surface that's hot, you pull away your finger. But it's eudynic. It's basically the body functioning. The, I think last year we had projectors from behind the screen. It's your body adapting or functioning in the way that it was designed to function. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that. This is what the body was designed to do. You know, if I stick a spear in the foot, wasn't the body designed to be able to say, hey, there's a spear in your foot, do something about it? Bless you. So nothing wrong with that. It's eudynic. It's linked to normal tissue function. Um, Dr. James Giordano, who probably presented every single pain pathophys session I took throughout the 90s and early 2000s, would say it's non-maldinic, meaning it's not bad. And you compare that to an example of bad pain, which would be neuropathic pain, so obviously quoting Dr. Giordano again, it would be maldinic, because it's linked to, theoretically, some sort of illness, disease, injury. Make sense? Something that's bad, we just assume it not be there. Now, it is assumed that that thing that's bad is, is associated, when it's chronic at least, with some sort of abnormality or dysfunction or error in processing in the central or peripheral nervous system. You guys don't have to take notes. I see a lot of people writing notes. Remember, all the information is in the slides. When I first saw this, this, this poster, if you will, it was the centerfold of, a, was it a nature science journal? It's pretty bad when we're putting up magazine centerfolds and it's a pain pathways. But the whole idea here, if you look at everything really closely, is this describes the entire process of pain from the time you hit your finger with a hammer to the point the signal gets to the brain. And if you start reading everything really carefully, you very quickly come to the conclusion that this is an overwhelmingly complex, overlapping process. Because the body says, no matter what you do, I'm going to make sure that signal gets through. So whether you believe in evolution or intelligent design, there are so many different things occurring here at one time to make sure that signal gets from my finger to my brain when I hit my finger with a hammer. It's going to be a little bit harder to control that than you think, isn't it? Because we often talk about being able to treat or manage pain.
from the concept of being able to, let's say, modulate it or manage it better than the body can do it itself. Well, to this I introduce the asteroid theory. And the asteroid theory of pain is such that because it is overwhelmingly redundant and complex, we are really not controlling what the body does with respect to these pain pathways. We are merely influencing them. Just like we don't have the technology to destroy an asteroid completely right now, do we, if it was barreling towards Earth? We might have the ability of getting it to veer off course a little bit so that we're influencing it so when it hits the damage is not as severe. We might be able to break off a small chunk so when it hits the damage is not severe, but we cannot control it. And thus, at our current state of being able to treat pain, we do not have the ability to essentially modulate or control the body's perception of it. We are only influencing that key concept. For those of you who don't know me, which is probably two-thirds of the people in the room at least, I see some familiar faces, which is great, except then I yell at you for being here because I know you've sat through this session before and I really would like you to see other sessions of Pain Week to challenge you even further. But I'm a car guy and I like to use car and road analogies for my explanations because that's something that works for me. So from my perspective, this whole process of pain transmission is like a road map with several different landmarks on it which are our checkpoints and we have to go from point A to our final destination, let's say at point D, so our signal starts in the periphery and makes it up to the brain and each one is a checkpoint or a stop along the way. So if we take that concept and expand it, it's a physiologic process that involves multiple, systems, uh, multiple um, parts of the, of the nervous system. It's bi-directional like a two-way highway, it has signals going to and from. It's a pathological process. It's also a normal process. It involves an effective or a cognitive side of the equation, meaning it's, there's also something that's, uh, that's higher than just the, the anatomical function of each of these checkpoints by themselves. Um, it's occurring in real time. It's dynamic. And the last thing we have to pay attention to is this concept of the body can adapt to advance placed upon it at any given time, and that really is this whole concept of neuroplasticity. So think about this for a second. And I've used this example before, and now I've seen it show up in Medscape articles, and I smile every time I see that because I know where it came from. If you want to develop your cardiovascular system, what do you do? Exercise. So you do aerobic exercises to develop your cardiovascular system. So your cardiovascular system is improved, and you would call that a cardioplastic change. Well, that phrase does not exist, so it was coined here in this room. So that would be similar to what happens in the state of this constant state of, of this nerve firing alert, say the body firing to say that something's wrong. So the nervous system changes to adapt for the fact that there's a demand placed on it, just like you have for this cardioplasticity idea. But here's the other thing you have to remember. What happens if you stop exercising? It goes back, doesn't it? But does it go back overnight or does it take time? takes time. So here's a great concept. You know, I'm notorious for liking to step back, examine the patient, say, hey, I know you've seen a couple of other people so far, but you know there's a spear in your foot, don't you? You pull the spear out, you change the way that you treat the patient, and the patient comes in a couple weeks later, and you see them looking better, behaving completely different. You repeat your examination findings, and they're all normal, and you ask the patient now, how are you feeling? And they say, no different. Well, there's a reason for that because you had been in pain for so long, it takes the body time to get back to normal. 
And when you explain that to the patient, it's like you lifted a burden off their shoulders and instead of asking for more medications, you can continue weaning them off the ones that they were on. So communication becomes key. And I, 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 I hope that you'll remember the fact that neuroplasticity is a two-way street. And I will tell you all too often as well, and I'll bring this up at the end, and I'll give you a couple of really good case examples. Remember we can influence or modulate? Who says we can't over-influence or over-modulate? Or maybe that the treatment that we're doing might be helping to maintain pain. That's why sometimes it's a really good idea just to take a step back and start again. Fresh look. All right, so if there are a couple of slides in the entire deck that you have to remember, this is one. Because this one meets that first sort of objective, which is addressing some of the different types of pain. So the whole concept of nociceptive pain is we're taking information from our, it's just like a big room to walk back and forth with. We're taking information from our outside, our bodies, and we're looking at this hot, cold, sharp, dull. We're converting that to electrical impulse at the skin, right? Where's the arrow button here? Then that signal has to travel along the peripheral nerve where it gets the spinal cord, kind of goes to that first order synapse, then jumps to the ascending spinal pathways, and finally ends up at the brain. Okay, guys, is that a normal or a pathological process? Come on, yeah. you know, I don't have any Amazon gift cards to give out like we have for, for pain pathophys, but we can keep track of points. It's like whose line is it anyway, but the points don't matter. And my wife hates that show, by the way. Um, so is this concept of nociceptive pain normal or abnormal? Normal, this is the, the way the body was designed to function. Give me information that I just touch something that's hot. Give me information that I just, just touch something that's dull. So what happens when we look at this whole concept of inflammatory pain? Now what are we doing? Well, now we added something to the mix that might involve tissue injury or the immune system. But we're still looking at those same pathways for that signal to get back. So is that a normal or a pathological process? It's good to see that you were all split because it's a trick question. It's a normal process that might involve the presence of pathology. When you get heads nodding, that's a good thing. How about this concept of neuropathic pain? Neuropathic pain, by definition, remember, assumes that there's something wrong with the nervous system. We have something wrong with the way signals are being processed in the central or peripheral nervous system creating a problem. Thus, the idea of neuropathic pain, correct? Yes. Well, hold that thought. Until about 2004, that was where the discussion ended. Until Wolf came out and said, you know, there's a fourth category of pain. And we're going to call that fourth, fourth category of pain functional pain. And functional pain was anything that didn't fit in the other three categories. But it basically said, look, that would be where you stick like non-cardiac chest pain or pain associated with irritable bowel or certain forms of fibromyalgia. All right. When I was doing, I did this preceptorship at Evans Army Community Hospital at Fort Carson. So perfect case example was the soldier who was admitted to the hospital for five times for chest pain. So after five thorough cardiac workups, I think they were pretty convinced that it was non-cardiac chest pain. So we took a step backwards, identified a rib arthropathy, an irritation of the costovertebral joint, injected it, and popped it back into place, and there went his non-cardiac chest pain, never to return, and he's back in active duty. So was that a functional pain? Well, not really. We converted that or took a step backwards, reclassified it, in this case as an inflammatory pathology, and then treated it to resolution. So what I'm saying here is it's not wrong to look at this functional pain category, but as we move forward and as we develop different skills for looking at where we're going in this pain world, 
I think we're going to redefine what sits in this category or maybe even come up with a whole new sort of categories to really classify these patients in. Now let's take, and there's a, a cliffhanger here for fibromyalgia, and we'll get back to that one. But let's go back at this neuropathic pain thing for a second, okay? And let's use our example of the spear in the foot guy. Does the spear in the foot guy have a neuropathic pain just because it's chronic? Not necessarily. He's got, a, he's got what I would call a chronic manifestation of an acute injury, which is a spear in the foot. Boy, does that sound complex, doesn't it? So really, we need to take this neuropathic pain and divide it into subcategory A, what everybody thinks about for having an error in processing in central peripheral nervous systems. But category B should be, you know what? The nervous system is doing exactly what it was designed to do. Maybe we need to look why it's behaving the way it is, so we need to find another cause, because it's not really an abnormality, it's a normality. Just food for thought. Um, I'm going to ask if you have any questions, could we keep them towards the end? And if I push it to the end, which I always do, I'm open to questions anytime at pain week. Sorry. <laughs> um, I borrowed this slide from Dr. Michael Clark, who has also been one of our distinguished faculty at pain week since the beginning. Um, and one of the things I liked about this slide was that it basically gave you this sort of distinction between the, the classic nociceptive and neuropathic pain conditions. So on the left side of the equation, we have the classic nociceptive pain, the sports injury, sprain, strain, um, the, the arthritic-type pain processes. On the neuropathic side of the equation, we had the post-hepatic neuralgia, diabetic peripheral neuropathic pain, trigeminal neuralgia, classic neuropathic pain syndromes. And then in the middle, we have this mixed category. And it's a mixed category because it may include some components that are both neuropathic and nociceptive, but they also might have components that are completely independent of either. So, you know, I kind of look at things like back pain, if you notice, is in all three. So this is my shameless self-promotion that you have to come to the differential diagnosis of back pain masterclass. Because what we, we want to do is take a step backwards and look for some of the little clinical tricks and tools that we have to try and figure out where our patient with back pain might sit so we can determine better how to treat it. Just as a reminder, pain neurophysiology, see Dr. Schottmeyer, I'm using the right term, <laughs> pain neurophysiology is a very complex subject. And we can start this morning, even with an introduction, and then finish the entire rest of the whole entire pain week meeting talking about nothing but, and we still wouldn't have covered it. So remember, for those of you who think that I'm going to cover this in a very light manner, there's only so much we can do in an hour, and this is meant to be an introduction course that or session that's also aimed at educating people like our patients. So we're going to oversimplify things. So... Where is the other slide? There is a slide missing from the deck. Oh, there we go. This is basically the process of pain transmission in one single slide. This is it right here. So we can all learn this, and then we can leave. Well, not quite. But this is one of those things you have to remember, because this is going to be on every single board question. The primary four steps for the process of pain transmission. So if someone ever walks up to you and says, can you describe the process of pain transmission? You can say, oh, yeah and you're going to be able to blurt out transduction, conduction, transmission, perception. Or if you listen to Dr. McPherson, which is not wrong, you're going to include modulation. And remember, I'm the car guy, so I like roadmaps. I don't include modulation as a step because I think modulation occurs in each one of these parts of the pathway, so it's not independent. So I just encourage you, if you see a question relative to the pain perception and pain pathways, 
modulation may be included in the answer, you have to look at the context of the question. So from my perspective, though, it's not important that we all memorize this. It's important that you have an understanding of what's going on. So here's my take on how I explain it. And over the years, different people have come up and tell, told me what their takes are on it. It's really cool to hear all the different analogies, except the one that went right over my head last year was a sports one that just I could not grasp. That's probably because I don't spend enough time watching football. So the first step of the process is called transduction. A transducer is anything that converts one form of energy into another. Remember those old-fashioned television screens? computer monitors, and old-fashioned is like 10 years ago, right? Time flies these days. But remember those big, heavy things? Well, those were cathode ray tubes. So what happens in a cathode ray tube is you're taking a beam of electrons and you're slamming it against the glass screen coated with phosphors. The phosphors absorb the energy and give off light. So that computer monitor or television screen was a transducer because it converted electrical energy into light energy. Make sense? Yeah. So. Can someone give me the, the, um, the, the analogy, if you will, that's the inverse of that relative to us? The eyes, because your eyes are converting outside information as well. It's in the form of light energy into electrical energy that the body can process much the same as our peripheral nociceptors. So your eye is a nociceptor, isn't it? Who said not? Who, who is the one who said eyes, by the way? Extra credit points to him, 1,000 points. So the first level of what happens is we're converting this information at the level of the skin for this step called transduction, where we're taking this information, something that's hot, cold, sharp, dull, and converting that into electrical impulse right at that peripheral nociceptor. Make sense? Everybody got the first one? All right, so now we have to get the signal to the spine. So what's happening with that to get the, along the peripheral nerve? Well, that's conduction. So here's how I'm dated. When I started college, I had to commute for my first semester. So I remember having to either buy a ticket or, or either on the subway or the bus from the conductor or have the conductor punch the ticket long before they had these like travel cards or something. But you know, to this day, last year I went to a REMS meeting in Washington, DC, and I did not feel like driving from Richmond because I had just had it with traffic that week. So I, I bought a ticket on Amtrak online I get to the station, they don't even bother looking at your ticket, but when you get on the train, a conductor's walking up the aisle, he looks at your ticket and puts a thing above your seat as to where you're going. So I always remember the first part of my journey, no matter where I'm going, is conduction. Because I remember the, the picture of the, the conductor punching my ticket. And apparently it's still true today. So now we get to the spine at that first order synapse in the dorsal horn, and we have to get that signal up to the brain. So that has to be transmitted through the spinal cord. Well, here's the rest of my analogy. I live in Richmond, Virginia. We get direct flights to nowhere unless it happens to be to a hub city. So if I want to fly to Vegas, I got to go to another airport first. So I always remember the first part of my journey is conduction. Then I got to get to the airport and transfer planes. So I always remember the next part of my journey is having to transfer. And that's how I remember transmission. It works for me. I still can't get that football play the guy was telling me, though, because it was just way over my head. Now, this is partially an accurate statement, partially inaccurate. But for the most part, we are all identical up to that step. I mean, there's going to be some genetic variation from one patient to the other in the way we process information or the way we react to certain things up to that level. But for the, for the most part, we're all about the same for transduction, conduction, transmission. The last step in the process, perception, 
that's where we all differ from one to the other. And not necessarily because of the physiologic issues, it's the psychological side, it's the behavioral, the limbic side of the equation, the learned experience side of the equation. I mean, we can all empathize and we can all see that patient who comes in with a paper cut and you ask them on a scale from one to 10, explaining to them that 10 is the worst it can possibly be, near death, it can never get any worse than that. And they tell you it's a 15. And we compare that to the patient, the one I like to use to be embellishing a little bit here. The guy comes in with a two by four sticking out of his abdomen and he looks down and says, ooh, that's a flesh wound. I guess we'll call that a three. Show of hands, who would rather treat the guy with the flesh wound in the three? All day long. So now we've got to fix that order. Okay, so the first thing that happens basically in the process of pain is transduction. What happens at trans for the step of transduction is we're directly activating this peripheral nociceptor because of a stimulus that's either thermal, mechanical, chemical, and that's causing the receptor to fire. Now, there are also other receptor sites on that same peripheral nociceptor that are triggered by inflammatory cytokines and other things, so it's the same nociceptors that are being triggered by that immune response. Okay, But this is the first step of the process, transduction. So now, just to get the ball rolling, these are the mediators that are involved in the process. Prostaglandins, leukotrienes, substance P, histamine, bradykinin, serotonin, hydroxy acids, inflammatory cytokines. And I always have to leave reactive oxygen species for last because I can't say it fast. But that tells you right away that goes into what we were saying about the asteroid theory, doesn't it? There's a lot going on. It, this gives us a lot of pharmacologic targets but that goes to showing that we're more influencing what's going on rather than controlling what's going on. If you video that, do I get a licensing fee? <laughs> All right, so we now have to get this signal that we've created or that we've transduced at the skin over to the spinal cord, dorsal horn at that first order neuron. So we all remember that first step of the process involves the guy punching your ticket. It's called conduction, correct? So these peripheral nerve impulses were traveled along, what happened to my slide order? They're traveled along two primary pathways, if you will. So this is where my rotor analogies come into play. We've all heard of A delta and C fibers, correct? Here's how I remember A delta and C fibers. A delta fibers are our large diameter myelinated fast conducting fibers. Well, they're like the latest, greatest superhighways. They might be six lanes either direction, large diameter. They're rapidly conducting 10 to 30 meters per second or maybe speed limits of 70 miles per hour. They're myelinated. And yes, I know, myelin is made by Schwann cells, which are glial cells that allow for saltatory conduction to allow signals to travel faster. But for all practical discussion, it's like the oil that helps grease things along. They're thermal and mechanical. Well, they're limited in what can go on an expressway. You can drive your car or drive a bus. Are you going to jog on the interstate? Are you going to ride your bicycle on the interstate? No. How about when you get on the interstate, you only have certain places you can get on or get off. You get on at exit one, get off at exit five. So they have small receptor fields. That works well. And you contrast that with C fibers. Well, C fibers are the smaller diameter, slower conducting fibers. Well, small diameter, it's like the road in front of your house. It might be two lanes, one lane going either direction, small diameter. They're cross-sensitized. What does that mean? Well, what happens on one block in your neighborhood? kind of affects what happens on the next, right? Think about Radiator Springs, if you watch the Cars movie. Didn't everything that happened in Radiator Springs just get overlooked by the expressway? All right. 
So cross-sensitized. They're slower conducting. Well, instead of 10 to 30, they're now 0.5 to 2 meters per second, or the speed limit of 25 miles per hour. They're unmyelinated. Do we have to repeat the thing about Schwann cells, glial cells, and myelin saltatory conduction? So no grease to help it long. They're slower. They're polymodal. They take all comers. You can ride your bike, jog, walk. It doesn't, scooter, it doesn't really matter. We take everybody. And lastly, they have broad receptor fields. You can come and go wherever you'd like, every single block, turn on, turn off. It's going to be hard to get that road analogy out of your head now for A-delta and C-fibers, won't it? There is yet a third fiber in this peripheral nerve if we take a cross-section, though, and those are A-beta fibers. What are A-beta fibers? A-beta fibers are even larger diameter fast-conducting fibers that are myelinated, but they don't typically carry signals for nociception, they carry signals for proprioception, typically. But there's a cliffhanger here for fibromyalgia, and we'll get to that. OK, so where's the rest of the slide deck? There we go. All right, so we've gotten the signal to the, first, the dorsal horn. And we have to now jump at that first order synapse from the peripheral nerve into the ascending spinal pathways for the next step of the pathway that is known as, everyone, transmission. There you go. So just to complicate things a little bit further, the A delta and C fiber uh, neurons synapse in the dorsal horn, and then they have to ascend through those spinal pathways, but they do so along two different paths themselves too. So here's where the road analogy works. The A delta fiber synapse in the dorsal horn, and then they ascend or are transmitted through the spinal cord along the neospinal thalamic pathways, the newest, latest, and greatest. Remember, like the newest, latest, and greatest interstate? The C fibers, smaller diameter fibers, synapse in the dorsal horn, and their signals ascend through the paleospinal thalamic, the old, just like the old plain two-lane highways. Make sense? And then to further that, the paleo sort of are... They're like the local roads, so we have to make a few stops along the way, like in the midbrain and thal in the midbrain before getting to the thalamus. Yet the neospinal thalamic or an expressway right to the thalamus. So the whole concept of the, the A delta and, and, and uh, C fibers with the road analogies works beautiful. But now what we're going to do is we're going to start building this model as we go. So there's something else that's going on here too. Like we have this this little thing coming down like a toll gate coming down and saying, whoa, right at this where the signal's going to jump from that, the peripheral nerve to the, the spinal nerve, you have this little thing coming down like a toll gate saying go or no go. Well, that's a descending inhibitory tract. Makes sense. We're going to inhibit the signal by putting, dropping that toll gate and say, whoa, you're not going anywhere. And those pathways are norepinephrine and serotonin mediated. Everyone got that? So now we're thinking, ooh, that's where NSRIs have an effect. So, building our model even further, there's a couple of other things going on that are playing a role in how well that nerve impulse is going to travel and synapse at that first order synapse as well. There's a, a, things called excitatory neurotransmitters, and we have things called inhibitory neurotransmitters. So I always picture like the scale of justice or teeter-totter or something along those lines where you have these excitatory neurotransmitters saying go, 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 and you have these inhibitory neurotransmitters saying whoa, slow down. So the, the balance between this excitatory versus neuro inhibitory neurotransmitters is going to influence whether or not the nerve impulse has a greater likelihood of getting through or a lesser likelihood of getting through. Make sense? So 
Our excitatory neurotransmitters include substance P, CGRP, aspartate, and my fave glutamate, and our inhibitory neurotransmitters include gabaglycine, somatostatin, and alpha-2 agonists. So, so far, we have a couple of different things here which are going to involve the nervous system responding to the demands, potentially changing, placed upon it when necessary. So we're looking at possibilities including descending inhibitory tract and the ratio of excitatory versus inhibitory neurotransmitters. We won't even, well, we will talk about some of the other things that can occur for these neuroplastic changes. Um, we're not going to talk much about them except to mention that if you change the way that peripheral nociceptor behaves, you're changing the neural structure. Well, that's a possibility. Because remember, some of these little receptor sites on the nociceptors are constantly being cycled out. It's not like they're designed and they stay there. They're constantly being uh, um, um, you know, uh, changed out over time. And some of those things include hours or days. You, a lot of these peripheral nociceptors or neurons are also interconnected. So if you change the way that these fibers are connected or, or neurons are connected, you can also change the way that the nerve behaves. But from our generic large model today, we're talking about we have a couple of different things, which is the body's own response to these demands placed upon it, meaning to send a pain signal, which are the descending inhibitory tracts coming down and saying go or no go. We have this um, this ratio of inhibitory versus excitatory neurotransmitters, and these are some of the neuroplastic changes that occur. We've all heard the terms peripheral central sensitization, correct? Well, here's my take on peripheral sensitization for the patient. I need a volunteer for this one. So since you're closest, who are you? What's your name? I, <laughs> you would have to say that. Say it again. Emma. Em Emma. That works for me. The whole name I could not pronounce in my entire life. Can I put your hand, Emma? If I tap her hand, she feels that and feels me tapping her hand. I can do that all day long. She's not really going to be upset. She might get tired of it, but it's really not going to be an upsetting process. But if I rubbed her forearm and made it all red and irritated and basically built up this state where we have all these um, inflammatory cytokines and, inflam and neurotransmitters built up, so now when I touch her hand, what's going to be the response? It's going to be exaggerated. So she's going to have a greater perception of pain because we either lowered the threshold for pain to occur or we've made it more likely for the reaction to be much more robust because we've amplified it from the very start. I mean, that's peripheral sensitization in a nutshell. It doesn't get much more complicated than that. Central sensitization, unfortunately, is far more complicated because there's a lot of other things that can happen. So before we dive into the central sensitization side of the equation, we have to talk about some of the key terms we see associated with central sensitization. I hope you don't find me that boring. <laughs> All right, those are hyperalgesia and allodynia. So allodynia, by definition, is a painful response to something that should normally be innocuous. Um, my, I heard an example this morning in the pain terminology session, um, which was, you know, that's sort of having a painful response to touching a patient with a feather. The ones that I've always used are, think about your patients with gout, where they feel a sheet touch the tip of their great toe, and that elicits a painful event. That's allodynia. Think of your complex regional pain syndrome that feels air hit the hairs on their forearm, and that elicits a painful event. That's allodynia. On the other hand, hyperalgesia is, is sort of having an exaggerated pain response to something that should normally be uncomfortable, like, ouch, don't do that. But now it's like, ouch, don't do that, because it's much more stronger. Does that make sense? So I like to use this plot, because if you plot out, and sorry if I'm walking over to the right side of the room, oh, to the well, left side of the room, you're right, my right. 
Um, you have this part of the scale, if you plot stimulation intensity versus pain intensity, you have this part of the scale here on the bottom where you don't normally pay attention to the sheet on hitting your toe or the air hitting the hairs on your forearm. But then as you increase the stimulation intensity, your perception of pain intensity starts to increase. Well, in the state of central sensitization, what seems to be happening is we're phase shifting this curve to the left. So now you have the area under the red, which is that you shouldn't necessarily be paying attention to, which were innocuous that are now eliciting pain. That's allodynia. And then if you see over here, you're perceiving a higher pain intensity to a lower stimulation intensity, that would be hyperalgesia. And then I always point out that the one error in the entire slide is that, and we see this on every slide that has a similar plot, there is no fine dividing line between allodynia and hyperalgesia. You can have a patient that seems to be a little bit more on the allodynic side of the equation than, than hyperalgesia and vice versa. So there is no fine dividing line where you say, ooh, at this level it jumps over, just food for thought. So basically, if we look at the peripheral nociceptor, we have receptor sites on that peripheral nociceptor that can be contriggered by various different stimuli, which are peripheral nociceptors, like the things that are hot, basically mechanoreceptors and thermoreceptors and chemical receptors that are triggering themselves based on this outside stimuli. We have receptors that also respond to the immune system side of the equation, the inflammatory side, but we also have something here called an MOR. And this, remember, this is the peripheral nociceptor at the skin. Everybody know what an MOR is? Yes, a mu opioid receptor. Do we think of having opioid receptors at the level of the periphery all the time when we think about prescribing opioids? Not really. Now, there was a study that came out back just after World War II because they were actually using um, injectable morphine on the battlefield as a local anesthetic. That's one for you. Now, I like to think that the mu opioid receptors in the periphery are more associated with endogenous opioids like the example from this morning, I just got my arm bit off by a shark and I want to be able to swim away and preserve life and not think about my arm pain or whatever pain. Um, but you have to pay attention to the fact that there is a potential target at least for opioids in the periphery as well. So for whatever reason, whether we trigger a peripheral receptor site or we're looking at the inflammatory side of the equation or we're looking at the way that mu opioid receptor goes, it's all about this, this nerve impulse for cascading this action potential in the peripheral nerve. So, a couple of our, the, on the central sensitization side of the equation, there are a couple different things that can happen now. And here's my example of um, this idea or concept of wind-up. If I took, I don't have a glass up here, but let's say this was my glass, and I filled this glass to the very brim with water. Well, let's go backwards. If I fill it halfway, I can walk across this floor and I'm not gonna spill a drop. Would everybody agree? What will be the likelihood of me starting to spill water if I fill it up to the brim and start walking? A lot more likely. So for this concept of activation, we're basically saying, wait a second, we're filling up the glass of water all the way to the top, so it's highly likely we're going to get overflow, and that spill-off is going to cause that excitatory function of the nerve. Except we're not talking molecules, what could we, or water molecules, what could we be talking? How about an excitatory neurotransmitter like glutamate? Make sense? So we have a couple of different things that can happen for central sensitization, obviously. Wind up, modulation, because we have the delicate balance between the excitatory versus inhibitory neurotransmitters. We have the descending inhibitory tracts coming down and saying go or no go. Remember those. So wind up basically is all about this kind of NMDA-glutamate relationship. Glutamate binds an NMDA receptor, and this is that first-order synapse in the dorsal horn of the spinal cord. So here's the peripheral nerve. Here's that 
the spinal nerve. So glutamate binds an NMDA receptor. The receptor opens, and that allows for the influx of sodium and calcium, and that's how the signal jumps from the peripheral nerve to the spinal nerve. Make sense? So wind-up or central sensitization can occur by if you have too much glutamate, then you have a greater tendency to bind the receptor. But you can also change, excuse me, change the way the receptor behaves because if the receptor starts staying open too long, that allows for a greater influx of sodium and calcium, so that would be more likely to travel. So the way the behavior, the receptor behaves can be altered. You can block it. You can change the function. You can do all sorts of things to it to affect the way that it works. Um, we don't really talk about the AMPA receptors too much in pain, but it is another glutamate-type receptor, and there are actually more AMPA receptors in the body than NMDA receptors, but that's another discussion. Um, substance P, we know, is also an excitatory neurotransmitter, and it, there, there's some debate about what it does, but it definitely plays a role in this overall glutamate-NMDA relationship. We have the descending inhibitory pathway, remember, that's coming down and influencing this, this, this first-order synapse as well, and that's what the... the norepinephrine and serotonin side of the equation is also having an effect. But what else do you see here? A mu opioid receptor. So that first order synapse in the dorsal horn of the spine also has an opioid receptor. Everybody got that? So just to take note of what we have so far for central sensitization, we can change the concentration or alter the concentrations or ratio of excitatory versus inhibitory neurotransmitters. We can somehow alter this glutamate-NMDA relationship, either by increasing the concentration of glutamate or change the way it happens it binds or the way that it stays open longer. We have the descending inhibitory tract that comes down and says go or no go, the norepinephrine and serotonin-based side of the equation. And we now also have a mu opioid receptor. Well, that's not all. So the A-delta and C-fibers come in and stamps the dorsal horn. The descending inhibitory tract, which in this case is green instead of blue, comes down and says go or no go. We have these things here called spinal cord glial cells. One of my favorite sessions at Pain Week was a couple of years ago, and that was given by um, John Pepin, Dr. Pepin, and it was an hour talk on glial cells. It was superb. I really hope they bring it back. So what glial cells do, and my take on glial cells, because if you remember, a lot of us went to school way back in the day. We thought glial cells like the white matter did nothing but provide structure. They were like the inert guys that did nothing. Well except with the exception of certain specialized ones like Schwann cells, which are glial cells. But we know today that they do have a function, and they actually function with respect to pain pathways much like roving reporters. I mean, it never fails. This is like hurricane season. So I remember I think we were at a, either coming to or going from one of our first pain weekend meetings, and that was Katrina. But when you have some, some newsworthy event, what we do is we send people right to the site of where it's happening. So we send a reporter out there to give us a direct beeline of information back about what's going on on site. So spinal cord glial cells on demand when pain is present either migrate to or become activated in order to give a, an entirely secondary alternate pathway back to the brain to give you signals to say that something is wrong. So spinal cord glial cells are the roving reporters of the central nervous system. Easy to remember now, huh? So what about GABAergic inhibitory interneurons? What are they doing? Well, if I said, what are they doing? Very simply, you kind of got a good idea just by the name because they got to be inhibiting something. The question is, what are they inhibiting? Or how do they work? Well, remember, glutamate was an excitatory neurotransmitter, correct? So if we kind of tie up the glutamate, 
wouldn't that have a tendency to inhibit the signal from jumping? So you're ready for my ridiculous analogy for um, the GABAergic inhibitory interneurons? They're like the Pac-Man of the central nervous system. Remember the game Pac-Man back in the day? You have these like smiley face looking things that were gobbling something up. Well, they're gobbling up what? Glutamate. Now you're going to be stuck with that picture in your head too, so I apologize. And then to show you how well all this stuff is interrelated and keeps on coming back and haunting you, GABAergic uh, spinal cord glial cells metabolize GABAergic inhibitory interneurons and the whole process starts again. So I can't wait to see you explaining this stuff to somebody on, on a more, like a, a high level and you're sitting there talking reporters and Pac-Man. It's going to get really interesting, won't it? So remember that, that, um, that cliffhanger we gave you for fibromyalgia? So if you look at the dorsal horn where the A delta and C fibers come and synapse in and back, they have different receptor fields than those A beta fibers, which are the fibers for proprioception. But in certain situations, you can get alteration of the receptor field so that where the A beta fiber now um, is, is, is terminating, if you will, is now triggering the same fibers that would be normally controlled by A delta and C fibers. And that can result in a painful manifestation for something that should normally not be painful from the standpoint of proprioception. That is a plausible explanation for certain forms of fibromyalgia or myofascial pain that might have a neurological basis. But I'm putting the qualifier statement here that all fibromyalgia and myofascial pain are not created equally. We all know that you can have a regional pain syndrome that was overlooked. You can have a hormone, a vitamin, electrolyte deficiency, all of which that can contribute to myofascial pain or fibromyalgia. So I'm not saying this is the cause of all fibromyalgia pain. I'm saying this is a plausible explanation for certain forms of fibromyalgia, and this might be the one that would be more likely to respond to a neuropathic pain medication than would it not? Because would we expect the person who has a hormone deficiency to respond to a neuropathic pain medication to treat their fibromyalgia? Probably not. So it's all about patient selection. This crosstalk, if you will, that we just talked about in the receptor field can also occur in the peripheral nerve as well. Because if you injure that peripheral nerve, you're going to get leaking out of these inflammatory cytokines and neurotransmitters, which can irritate the nerve alongside, causing crosstalk. So that can be a another problem with bleeding over, also potentially a cause of fibromyalgia. So basically, if we take summary total of what we have so far for all these different um, central sensitization type problems that can occur which are involved in this process of neuroplasticity, we basically, um, we're going to have changes that we can occur that can alter the peripheral uh, receptor. We have changes that we can have at the, you know, involving this glutamate and MDA relationship. We have the balance of the excitatory versus inhibitory neurotransmitters. We have the descending inhibitory pathways that are coming down saying go, no, go, that are norepinephrine serotonin based. We added in the activation migration of glial cells to the equation, and we didn't even talk about the final step yet. And the final step is perception. So that's one of the most complex ones to talk about, so we're not going to touch upon it today except to state that we all remember when we went through school about looking at the little homunculus, you know, the primary sensory cortex. You get the funny-looking guy with the big head, the big hands. All right, that's the final step of the pain pathway, obvious. But thanks to modern imaging studies and other things that we have at our disposal, we now know that there are other parts of the brain that are involved in this rich experience that we call pain, right? We have the thalamus, of course, which we talked about this morning as being the router for all of the information to decide where it has to go. 
We have the hippocampus, which is involved in this kind of memory learning side of the equation. We have the amygdala, which is the emotional side, the prefrontal cortex, which is motor planning, the anterior cingular cortex, which is the context of the situation of pain, and the insular cortex being pain judged to the degree of where it is imagined. And I will guarantee that we're going to add more involvement of the brain now that we have certain other imaging studies available to us that are showing us how neurons are functioning in the brain. So it's going to be interesting to see where that goes, and I think we'll have to add to that. So I actually created the, uh, finished the first part of this session like in record time. That's truly impressive for me. That means I was really speaking fast. So what I wanted to do really quick is look at the idea, now that we know what the different parts of the pain pathway are, remember we have certain pharmacotherapies that are within our armamentarium to help treat these patients. So what I wanted to do, just with this slide and the next slide, and you can pull them out of your slide deck, we kind of just classified same information in two different ways, some of the different medication options we have and what parts of the pain pathway they can affect. But what I want to do with the remaining time that we have is I kind of want to look at some of these and talk about what the highlights of the Mars, because I think that's more important. Before we get there, I want to talk about the idea that our only guideline we had for treating chronic pain back as recent as a little over 10 years ago, 2005, was the World Health Organization guidelines for treating chronic cancer pain. Now, what was accurate here is that they proposed a stepwise manner in which we address or approach our pain patient. I think that concept is completely correct. What is the most incorrect part of this whole process today when we go back and critically look at these guidelines in this, con in this climate? Opioids were used too early in the process. So the VA DOD has a new care, a new step care plan model, which I truly admire. I hope, I truly wish that this would be accepted more broadly by clinical practice among all of us, you know, outside the VA DOD as well. And the reason why is it is a step process that looks at you know, increasing complexity, both from the standpoint of your treatment and the, the patient's demand, you know, the patient, yeah, patient's needs. But look at the whole first step. What is that called? Self-care. That puts the patient having skin in the game. Because what's the likelihood of a patient doing better when they have skin in the game? When a patient is being treated and they think you're going to do everything for them and they have it easy, what's the likelihood of ever making, meeting that goal? Pretty slim. So I really, truly respect this. And I, I hope it will sort of become more widely used. So these are the classifications of pain medications we're going to look, or medication targets we're going to look at really quick. So the first one is acetaminophen. Lynn McPherson did a whole hour on acetaminophen once. Um, we all know that it's, it got a problem being that it could be potentially hepatotoxic, right? We talk about maximum daily doses for Tylenol. But what I like to put out that's most important is Tylenol, from the standpoint of the pain side of the equation, has no effect on blocking peripheral prostaglandin activity. It only works centrally. Well, that's an important concept because I kind of believe in the art of war. I think if the problem is starting in the back corner of that room where that person's sitting with a black shirt or something, I'm going to take the battle to them first because then I have many more opportunities to try and address that problem. If I wait for the problem to come up to the moat in front of me, I only got one shot at getting it fixed or defending myself. I'd rather take it out in the periphery. So because of that, I think we have some better options available to us. But remember, that's an opinion. That's not necessarily a, a a guideline or a standard. So aside from the fact you have to worry about being you know, hepatotoxic, this is you know, what's important to me is the site of action. We have a problem with this from a patient perspective, though. What's the patient perspective problem for acetaminophen? It's over the counter. 
Well, they think it's safe by default, right? So if one is good, two is better, 25 must be great. Well, what does 25 do? That's a problem. So we have this concept of NSAIDs. Okay, my favorite NSAID of all time was, was taken off the market. But for those of you who were in practice at the time when that was used, would we have a consensus opinion to say that it worked? Yes. So what was the biggest medication we found ourselves replacing this medication when it got pulled with? Opioids. Gee, that would be problematic. Did it have a greater cardiovascular risk than any of the other medications in their class? Mm, probably not. So the whole thing probably should be, I would love for it to be revisited, but that's a soapbox statement. But if you think about it, we have multiple aspects and different ways of, of, of having NSAIDs. We have this weighting between COX-1 and COX-2. I encourage you, Dr. McPherson put up an image in the uh, Jeopardy session this morning, which actually showed the relative weighting, COX-1 or COX-2, of each of the different NSAIDs. And there's one that would be relatively close to the medication that was taken off the market, and that might be why it has a, that it seems to work in a similar manner as far as effect on our patients. But what's important to point out for NSAIDs in general is they exhibit both central and peripheral effects of cyclooxygenase and prostaglandin. So we're taking it to the periphery. There's a whole new classification, you know, that magic molecule that might play a role and might help us coming down the pike, and that involves lipoxygen, lipoxins and lipoxygenase. Lipoxins are compounds that are stimulated or generated uh, to signal tissue healing. So that might turn out to be a whole new class of, of action for NSAIDs. But what's the biggest problem with NSAIDs from the patient perspective? Perceived safety because they're over the counter, just like Tylenol. Remember, one, two is great, 25 is grand. And we know that would be a problem for what? Both cardiac and GI issues? How about opioids? You know, back in the day, we thought opioids were the magic pill that cured everything, weren't they? We have several different classes we talk about, the immediate onset, you know, the Turfrems product, products, the fentanyl products. We have short-acting, we have long-acting. We have different ways of getting that medication in, right? Transdermal, transmucosal, uh, oral, intrathecal, you name it, we can get an, uh, an opioid there. But what do we, what, where is the discussion today with respect to opioids? We not only have to worry about the medication, and knowing that it has an effect on the limbic side of the equation, which is the brain, but we also showed you that it can have an effect at the peripheral nociceptor and the spinal pathways as well. Right? So they have an effect on the entire system. But what else do we have to worry about with opioids now? Addiction, abuse, diversion, opioid-induced respiratory depression, because that would be the final answer, right? So well, there's something else that we don't talk about with opioids that's very important to mention, which is Remember that descending inhibitory pathway that's norepinephrine and serotonin-based that comes down like the toll gate and says go or no-go? Many of the opioids have an effect where, working through GABA, they turn some neurons that are off on and some that are on off, which is higher up in that cascading pathway involved in the descending inhibitory tract. We don't hear that too often, do we? So think about this for a second. That means that if we put a patient, let's say, on an opioid and on an NSRI, because of the combined effect of both of them working together, might we be able to get away with a lower effective dose of the opioid and the NSRI? Because if you have a lower effective dose, what do you decrease the likelihood of? Side effects plus lowering the dose of opioid, things like that. Well, that's what you call rational polypharmacy. We all do that in practice, but where are the drug studies that show that? The drug studies are usually single trial drugs to get the drug to market that doesn't necessarily reflect the way that we use them in clinical practice. Maybe we need to stand up and speak a little bit louder about that. Just saying. 
So opioids essentially have an effect on the entire pathway from transduction to perception. They're not selective of either particular one. On the adjuvant analgesic side, what about tricyclic antidepressants? Man, I watched the turn. I've seen speakers, even at pain week years ago, that would stand up and say, we don't use tricyclic antidepressants enough. Now, what's, now what do they say? We use tricyclic antidepressants too much. But look, if your patient has a comorbidity that requires it, well then, that's where it should be. So you have to understand from the standpoint of the TCA that analgesia is independent of antidepressant function, but there's two primary pathways that the TCA works on with respect to our pain process. On the left side of the equation, we have the norepinephrine serotonin side of the equation, which is the descending inhibitory tract, but they also essentially block neuron receptors in general, so they're working on the membrane stabling side of the equation, the calcium sodium side of the equation. So TCAs work from the standpoint of pain two different ways, independent of the, of the um, um, antidepressant function. But what are the issues we have to worry about with TCAs? Tolerability and some cardiotoxicity. And remember, all are not created equally. Some are more car cardiotoxic than others. How about SSRIs? You ever try those for pain? I remember leaving a pain meeting back in the 1990s, and they said we should put all our pain patients on SSR SSRIs. Well, what we found out was the serotonin side of the equation alone doesn't seem to do anything. And probably because there's actually receptors that are both inhibitory and excitatory, so it cancels each other out. They have serotonin receptors, and look how many different systems we have in, the, in body function. But the net effect of basically when you put a patient on an SSRI and they're in pain is it doesn't affect their pain, but it might make them feel better about being in pain. Come. Some people got that joke, but it is serious. So how about NSRIs? Well, if there's a medication that's kind of taken up the role of being the medication of choice these days as our adjuvant analgesics class, it's NSRIs, isn't it? Because it's, they're better tolerated and have less drug-to-drug -drug interactions than TCAs, and they're working on that norepinephrine uh, serotonin descending inhibitory tract saying go or no go, which remember is one of the pathways that opioids respond on too. So this is their primary site of action. Also, just like TCAs, Analgesia is independent of antidepressant function. What was the first one that hit the market? Venlafaxine, right? Does venlafaxine have a pain indication? No, but it's serotonergic at lower doses, noradrenergic at higher doses. Well, that's really important if you can't seem to get anybody to reimburse for the other ones. There are more than these three. The luxetine hit next, and that was more equally balanced and has several pain indications. Lonacepran seems to favor the norepinephrine side of the equation. Just food for thought. So their action is at that first-order synapse in the dorsal horn, descending inhibitory tract coming down saying go or no go. What discussion on neuropathic pain medications would be complete without the discussion of antiepileptics, right? There are basic pain medications, yes? The most common ones that we use are probably gabapentin and pregabalin. Interesting medications in this class is they all seem to have a different mechanism of action, although gabapentin and pregabalin are ridiculously similar. Um, but all the others are slightly different, so it's not unrealistic to see a patient on multiple medications from this particular class. But I always recommend that being done in caution with somebody understanding what the mechanisms of action are because you can get yourself into trouble if you don't pay attention to that. So basically, from the standpoint of remembering what they do, this is primarily looking at that in general, that glutamate NMDA receptor activity. But remember, they're membrane stabilizing agents. That's why they're called antiepileptics. And the gabapentin, what's, what do we know about gabapentin? Dosing is quasi-intuitive, right? As you raise the dose, 
the, avail the bioavailability goes down because you overwhelm those absorption pumps. So the first solution to that was pregabalin with six times the affinity. But what happens when you have six times the affinity from the standpoint of your medication action? You get six times the side effects, right? I didn't say that, but that leaked out. Um, so to address that issue, we have a couple different variations of the theme. They have like a long-acting gabapentin, right, which, which sort of modulates the release over a period of time, like a long-acting opioid. Another variation of the theme was they tagged another protein onto it so it can get absorbed further on in the digestive tract. So theoretically, you might be able to get away with a lower dose, and that addresses that bioavailability issue. But they're primarily think NMDA glutamate relationship. How about topicals? Lidoderm patches. Oh, sorry, I slipped. Lidocaine patches. That's a, a peripheral. You know, lidocaine is what? It's an anesthetic, so it's a sodium channel blocker. Now we only know it. We all know it has one indication for pain. But how often do you see patients cut up with lidocaine patches, cut up like band-aids, and they put one every place where it hurts? It's a good, you know, skill set. If it works, great. How about diclofenic? You know, I used to work in a practice where we had a lot of workers' comp patients, uh, casino employees in Atlantic City. Well, these guys, if they were out on workers' comp, got minimum wage. But if they're working on the table, they got 50 to 200 bucks an hour. So if you're supporting your family, where do you want to be, whether you're in pain or not? Working. But you couldn't have a brace. We were compounding topical medications to keep these people working, smiling, and happy. But now you have commercial available forms of diclofenic, cream, liquid patch gel. Of course, it's all off-label, but there's not a single place you can't figure out how to put diclofenic on a patient, which... Again, might be off-label, but doesn't that take the problem out to the periphery where it starts? And it's a way of kind of overlooking or overshooting that uh, cardiac and GI problem because 90% of it doesn't seem to get involved in those systems. How about capsaicin? Okay, well, capsaicin pulls down substance P, so that's an excitatory neurotransmitter. See how that works? You remember the, 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 the patch that came out a couple of years ago? How quickly did that tank? Anybody ever try it in their office? Did a patient ever come back for a second application? No, because the patch seemed to be more annoying than the pain that they experienced. My one funny story with that was I had a patient who said their pain was a 10 out of 10. And then someone had given them a patch. And when they came back in, they said, you know, I thought my pain was a 10 before, but now that I tried the patch, it's a 3. Because the patch was a 10. So we used to end the discussion there, and, but I want to talk about muscle relaxants really quick, and I'll really talk about that. We don't use, think of muscle relaxants as a pain medication, but we use muscle relaxants to treat our pain patients all the time, don't we? So the one thing you need to do is you need to watch the video on Medscape from Dr. Charles Argoff, because he talks about the origins of these antispasmolytics, these muscle relaxants, because cyclobenzaprine is a TCA. Um, Tazanidine is an alpha-2 agonist. Baclofen is a GABA agonist. Or phenadrine's benzo. So we're not supposed to be prescribing benzos with opioids too often, are we? But I've seen people prescribe orphenadrine and say, well, I didn't prescribe a benzo. I prescribed the muscle relaxant. You need to know your classes. But if you look at that little video on Netscape from Dr. Argoff, see if you pick out the same two muscle relaxants that I primarily like and prefer. And then you can let me know if you've chosen them. So I'm going to close this out with a case study. Here's a patient that was a nurse who was injured pulling a patient from a stretcher to the bed, and she ended up with neck, arm, and shoulder pain that was going on for three years. Comorbidities did include depression, anxiety, and some other things. But if you look at the medication that she's being treated on, that she's being given, they were at rather high doses, by the way. So when she called to schedule the appointment, she was high as a kite. When she presented for the appointment, she was so lethargic, I thought I was going to be calling a rescue squad. 
So we had multiple medications for the same class, medications from different classes with overlapping actions, all in higher doses, and we were looking at a mess. Being prescribed by three different physicians, neither one knew what the other one was doing because the patient compartmentalized for different healthcare problems. And what you ended up with was something very dangerous. So we took a step backwards and said, look, you gotta fix the medication issue first, and I'll be more than happy to look at your neck, arm, and shoulder pain. So three months later, she had the medications addressed, and what do you think happened to her neck, arm, and shoulder pain? Gone. So I would argue that we were basically over-modulating the nervous system at this case, which was then causing the pain to persist. So re reality is sometimes all we need to do is take a step backwards, look for the spear, come up with a new game plan, and then everything changes. And I had a more recent patient in December. You're going to love this one. The patient was on eight anti-anxiolytics, three anti-epileptics, two benzos, and an opioid. I looked at the patient. I walked into the consult and said, I'm looking at the whole back. And she was referred to me for back pain. I said, your back pain to me, I think, is going to be relatively simple. But if you continue down the course that you're on, we're not going to have to worry about your back pain because you're just going to be dead. And it was a consult with her husband and her nurse case manager. And the nurse case manager turned white because she couldn't believe I said that to the patient. But that intervention scared the patient so that she started working on her medications. And strangely enough, six weeks later, she called me sounding like an entirely different person. We were already down with half the medications on her list, which was pretty quick from the standpoint of taper. So I agreed to treat her back pain. One quick fix, back pain was taken off the table, never to be seen again. And by six months later, she was on one SSRI. And that was it. So with that, I thank you all for your time. I know I went over because I started early and ended late, but hopefully the information was valuable. And um, if you're more than happy to see you again, if you have any questions, please come up and ask. You can also bump into me anytime at Pain Week, and I'll be here this afternoon where we're going to do a session on kind of imaging studies and how that reflects in the overall evaluate, ability to evaluate a patient.